23, verse 8. Hear you deaf, and look you blind, that you may see. Who is blind but my servant, or deaf as my messenger whom I send? Who is blind as my dedicated one, or blind as the servant of the Lord? He sees many things, but does not observe them. His ears are open, but he does not hear. The Lord was pleased for his righteousness' sake to magnify his law and make it glorious. But this is a people plundered and looted. There are all of them trapped in holes and hidden in prisons. They have become plunder with none to rescue, spoil with none to say restore. Who among you will give ear to this, will attend and listen for the time to come? Who gave up Jacob to the looter and Israel to the plunderers? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned, in whose ways they would not walk, in whose law they would not obey? So he poured on him the heat of his anger and the might of battle. It set him on fire all around, but he did not understand. It burned him up, but he did not take it to heart. But now thus says the Lord, who, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar, and my daughters from the end of the earth." Everyone who is called by the name, by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made, bring out the people who are blind, yet have eyes, who are deaf, yet have ears. This is the very word of God. I want to begin this morning with two observations that are important for what like us to see in these verses this morning. First observation, when we read the Bible, we need to understand and have in our minds that we are reading a love story. We're reading the story of God who made the world a world of wonder and beauty, a world teeming with life and opportunity, a world that exists to display the love of God. I'm fascinated with the news right now that uh, NASA has a new space project program that has just begun with the goal of, in two years, putting a human being on the moon again. Most of us did not live through those days when we last did that. So I think that's amazing. And we were joking, some of us guys in our Mitchell family, if you had a chance to be the one to go to the moon, would you go? I just think the world is spectacular. The cosmos is amazing that I'd say, sign me up. I'd love to do that. God made this world. 
He made the universe teeming with life, beauty, opportunities. And when we read our Bibles, first observation, we're reading a love story. We're reading about a God who made a world of wonder. And that leads to my second observation. Christians, of all people, since we take the Bible seriously, ought to know that love is to be the dominant reality of our existence and is to be pursued with unceasing zeal. The late theologian J.I. Packer wrote that the Christian life is essentially a love affair. Do you think of your Christian faith that way? Is that how you would describe your life as a follower of Jesus? A constant connection to a God of love that not only satisfies your mind, but also stimulates your deepest affections. Is that, Christian, how the world would describe us as evangelical Christians? A people so in love with the God who is love that love is in fact the best way to describe us who claim to believe in him. There's a lot of work that needs to be done. A lot of room for improvement here, which I'm sure you would agree. So here on Labor Day weekend 2022, as I've done For the last several years, I want to present to us a theme for the next next year in what we're going to study together in in our Bibles. From September through next August, the theme for the year is the title of today's message, The Life-Giving Love of God. The Life-Giving Love of God. Unless we come to understand the love of God, we will not be able to draw from its life-giving power. So let's begin with this passage from the book of Isaiah. And the reason I've chosen this particular text to kick us off in this next year is because in Isaiah 43, verse 4, one of the verses that Eric read for us, you'll find the only time in the Bible that you find or that you can hear the three most powerful words in the universe coming from the mouth of God. He says in Isaiah 43, 4, I love you. I love you. And he's speaking, of course, to his chosen people, the people of Israel. So for us to understand the life-giving love of God, we need to consider together this morning three things. First, Israel's sacred calling. Second, Israel's tragic failure. And then lastly, Israel's only savior. To understand the life-giving love of God, we need to consider Israel's sacred calling Israel's tragic failure, and Israel's only savior. So first, consider with me this morning, Israel's sacred calling. 
scattered between Isaiah 42 and 53 are four servant songs that Christians have long recognized to be prophecies about Jesus, the coming Messiah of Israel. The New Testament clearly interprets these as references to Jesus. So when Philip encountered the Ethiopian eunuch on his way home in Acts chapter 8, for example, the man was reading from the fourth servant song, and he asked Philip who the prophet was writing about. And the Bible says, then Philip opened his mouth, and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. But when we read Isaiah 42 to 53, this passage is in that section, we understand that not all of Isaiah's references to this mysterious servant can so easily be understood as mere prophecies of Jesus. According to Isaiah 41 verse 8, the servant is plainly said to be the nation of Israel, the offspring of Abraham, the descendants of Jacob, the people of God in the Old Testament, the people that God chose for a specific vocation. It's why Israel is called his servant. He has a, Israel has a specific calling, a specific vocation. And the way that we might describe this sacred call is in terms of Isaiah 42, verse 1, where God says of this servant, are you with me here? I have put my spirit upon him. And look what it says. Here's the call. Here's the sacred call of Israel. He will bring forth justice to the nations. So God chose Israel for the sacred calling of ensuring that justice was done among all the nations of the world. Israel was to be God's judicial servants, ensuring that his world was run righteously. Now, consider with me for a moment what Israel's sacred calling it's not really what we're going to focus on this morning, but I want you to think about just this very, very fact that God chose a people with a task, with a calling to ensure that his world was run justly. Consider what this tells us about Israel's God. First, God's call of his servant Israel serves as a testimony to God's own, what should we say? We'll use the word glory. In other words, Israel was called to do something which would demonstrate to the world that, the, that Israel's God, known by the name Yahweh, was incomparably glorious. And all of the ancient nations of the world had their national deities, all making a claim to how the world was to be run. Now, that may seem very ancient and pagan to some of you, but it's not unlike today's politicians who are supposed to explain their vision for how things ought to be. In the same way, the ancient nations, whether Philistia or Assyria, Babylon or Persia, by their own way of living, by their own way of being in the world, by their own national laws, were making a claim this is how things ought to be everywhere. So Israel was to do exactly the same thing. In fact, 
turn your Bibles to the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 4. Go back to Deuteronomy chapter 4, and let me, let me show you that this was, in fact, part of this sacred call for Israel. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, you find Moses urging the nation to obey God's laws, not only so that they would live, do this and you will live, but also so that the nations around them would take notice. Look at verse 6. Moses says that if Israel would keep and do God's law, then the nations around them, when they hear all these statutes, will say, look at it, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. Do you see what's happening here? As Israel lives in obedience to Israel's God, the effect will be all the nations around will say, we ought to live like that. That's the way we ought to live in this world. This is the best way for people to live by living in obedience to Israel's God. So the claim of Israel's God, of course, was that he was not just Israel's God, but that he was the only God, the only true God. And yet, by being Israel's God, he was also bringing benefit to the whole world. God chose Israel to be his special people so that as Israel remained devoted to him and to his way of how the world should be, the nations around would take notice and the nations around would be drawn toward him and join in this way of being in the world. Now, hold your place here in Deuteronomy 4. We're going to come back to it. But just notice that this is how we are to read Israel's call here in Isaiah 42, specifically in verses 6 and 7, and its relation to the exclusivity of God in verse 8. God had called Israel in righteousness, he says, to be a covenant, look, for the people, a light for the nations. Yahweh was to be Israel's God, but he was also the only true God. And he chose Israel so that, as verse 7 says, the blind would see, the prisoner would be set free, so that the whole world would come to recognize that Israel's God was the only God and that his glory was incomparable. But the glory of God cannot be understood as something apart from God's love. And it turns out, Israel's calling was also meant to demonstrate God's love. Back here in Deuteronomy chapter 4, look in verse 7. Moses declares that in Israel's covenant relationship with God, one of the results would be the recognition that no other nation had a God, look, so near to it as Yahweh, as the Lord, our God, is to us whenever we call on him. Now, just think of it for a moment. Israel's call to be God's people was intended to demonstrate that God, Israel's God, was near. Very near. Intimately near. Now, this differs quite a bit from the standard deistic view of God that has dominated much of the modern imagination. Say God to your neighbor, 
And the default view is some sort of all-powerful being who is up there in heaven a long, long way away, right? Now, at the same time, the way that we tend to see the nearness of God is not by, uh, the way that we see the nearness of God should not be by lowering God to some creaturely status. God is not your personal assistant who sits on your couch with you every morning while you sip your coffee and says, what do you want to accomplish today? No, of course, the Bible says, even in Isaiah, Isaiah 57, 15, that God dwells in the high and holy place. But then the same verse says that he also dwells with the contrite and the lowly. So how are we to understand this nearness of God? What do we mean when we talk about God being near, intimately, very near to us? And the answer is to be seen, again, in Israel's sacred calling. Isaiah 43.1, again, here in our text, reminds us of the inherent distance between God and his people. He is the creator. We are his creatures. So there is a massive, indeed infinite, distinction between God and all human beings, as even the deist rightly notes. But then the verse goes on. Look at Isaiah 43, verse 4. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. And then those words again in verse 4. Because you are precious in my eyes and honored and I love you. The infinite God, high, exalted, far above us as creatures, the infinite God has made a move. A move that no one would have ever expected no God of the nations would ever do something like this. God entered into a covenant with his people, a covenant of love. He drew near, intimately near, so near that he made it clear as possible, not only to Israel, but to the nations, that the God who made the world is a God of infinite love. In other words, the God of the Bible, the God of Israel, who also happens to be the only true God, is not just there to be amazed. He is there to be enjoyed in a mutual exchange of love. After all, when God says to his people, I love you, what do you think he wants to hear us say in return? When you first said to your spouse, married people, I love you, didn't you hope to hear the same words back? So if God acts to demonstrate his love for his people, then what he yearns for, what he longs for, is to have them act in love for him as well. In Israel's sacred calling, we see the incomparable glory of God, but we also see the near, intimate love of God. This is who God is. And if this was the reason that God chose Israel, if this was his aim in setting his love upon them, then just consider for a moment what would be the consequences 
if Israel went astray, if Israel violated the covenant, if Israel was unfaithful to their God, and of course, you don't have to wonder. This isn't hypothetical. This is exactly what happened. Indeed, if we're going to understand the life-giving love of God, then we also need to consider not only Israel's sacred calling, but secondly, Israel's tragic failure. Now, anyone who is acquainted with the Old Testament knows that it is largely the story of Israel, at least from the call of Abraham in Genesis 12 until the late 5th century B.C. This is the story of Israel we carry in our Bibles. And it's largely Again, if you're acquainted with the Old Testament, a very tragic story. From the time of the patriarchs on to the exodus from Egypt and the conquest of the promised land, throughout the period of the judges, the subsequent history of Israel's kings, Israel never seems to quite reach the goal for which God had chosen them in the first place. Why is that? Again, this isn't the main point of the sermon. So let me just summarize for a moment by saying that it's because of two cardinal sins that dominate the Old Testament. Israel fails to bring the world into the righteous reign and rule of God because of two cardinal sins, idolatry and ungodliness. By the way, those two sins just happen to go together quite well. Whatever, whenever Israel succumbed to idolatry, described vividly in the Old Testament as Israel having an adulterous affair with other gods, it's no surprise that they also succumbed to the deviant behaviors and lifestyles of those gods. In fact, just a simple observation will tell us that in, in Israel's history that worship and practice, orthodoxy and orthopraxy, can never be separated. Who you worship is who you obey. It's true in the Old Testament. It's true to this very day. When Israel turned away from her God, she necessarily turned to the dehumanizing and unjust ways of the nations all around. And given God's purpose for choosing Israel in the first place, that means trouble, not just for Israel, but trouble for everyone. And the trouble begins, of course, with Israel itself. What kind of God would Yahweh be? This God who came so near, intimately near, to enter into a covenant with his people. What kind of God would he be if we found that he simply ignored Israel's infidelity? He certainly would not be the kind of God of love that we would want to worship. So, he did not ignore Israel's unfaithfulness. What happened to Israel was the absolute unthinkable. The nation fell to the army of the pagan king, Nebuchadnezzar, and in 587 B.C., Jerusalem was destroyed along with the great temple that Solomon had built. Remember here that this is a fact of history, not a made-up story. We're going to talk more about this even next week. 
But its interpretation theologically may not be accepted by everyone. But one thing is for certain. The destruction of Jerusalem in the 6th century certainly could not mean that Israel's God had come through for them. Not when Israel's city was in ruins and the temple was burned. This could only mean to anybody who had eyes to see that Israel's God either did not exist, probably like all those pagan gods of the nations, or that he had given up on his people, or he was powerless. Couldn't do anything about it. And in light of that, it's not hard to understand that Israel in exile in Babylon experienced a significant crisis of faith. The nation as a whole began to, what shall we say, deconstruct, to use a modern expression. And it's easy at this point to blame God or to outright deny him. After all, that's what you're tempted to do when things don't go well for you. But if you're reading Israel's history, if you're reading it like the love story it is, you probably don't blame God. You know what the problem is. How would anyone blame a person from contemplating divorce or even carrying it through if it's discovered that his or her spouse is involved in multiple ongoing unrepentant affairs? So what Israel was doing. So do you blame God? Are you surprised? God had entered into a covenant with Israel, but this was for Israel not just a great privilege. It came with, as any married person knows, an awesome responsibility. So here in Isaiah 42, 18 to 20, the prophet calls out Israel, describing them as blind and deaf. Look at verse 20. They might complain that God is nowhere to be seen. No, that God can't be, where is he? I can't even hear him. Can't see him, can't hear him. Where is this God? But in reality, we know the problem is. We're reading the story. The problem is with them. They see, but don't observe. Their ears are open, but they don't hear. So that's Israel's problem. We know this is the story. The story is we can't blame God for where Israel has come. They've been unfaithful to the God who redeemed them, who rescued them, who chose them, who set his love upon them. What's God going to do? Verse 21 says, follow along, he was pleased for his righteousness sake to magnify his law and make it glorious. Again, that's what we saw in Deuteronomy 4, right? God's purpose for giving Israel his law was to make Israel a model community to the world. But now that Israel has failed, what is God going to do? Look at verse 18. Here we find God at court with Israel, making his complaint against his people who have turned against him. And yet, who's going to be the judge between Israel and her God? If indeed Israel's God is the one true God, there's no one there to adjudicate. So there's a consequence for Israel for their unfaithfulness to their God. Verse 22 speaks of it in terms of exile to Babylon. This is a people plundered and looted. It's a prophecy. It's a prediction that Isaiah makes that Israel will be sent away from her homeland. But when we ask, who is responsible for bringing that consequence about? The answer is logical, though hard to swallow. 
Look at it, verse 24. Who gave up Jacob to the looter and Israel to the plunderers? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned, in whose ways they would not walk, and whose law they would not obey? That's unsettling. Who is responsible now, the prophet puts before his audience, for Israel's exile? I mean, it's clearly Israel's fault. They've been unfaithful, but it is just as clearly God's decree. This is the kind of thing that troubles countless people. It's probably troubled you. As one commentator writes, strict monotheism is a difficult doctrine to uphold specifically because it seems to attribute evil deeds to a good God. So every other religion in the world resorts to some kind of dualism here. When things go bad, or when things go good, when things go well, God gets the credit. God has blessed me. And when things go bad, blame it on another deity or on the devil. But Isaiah takes his people, and he takes us, if we're courageous enough to follow the story, he takes us to the breaking point. You know, that place that you may have found yourself before, and maybe somebody this morning is there right now. It's right here in Isaiah 42, 24 to 25. This is where deconstruction happens. This is where plenty of people Abandon their faith altogether. But yet, this is also the place where some will find their faith upheld, though on a far more profound level than was earlier possible. And that's my hope for us in the coming year. We talk about the love of God, and yet Paul tells us Paul tells us it takes spiritual strength to comprehend it. Spiritual strength to comprehend the love of God. My hope for us, Crosstown, in the year ahead is that we will have the courage to go, like Israel of old, to this uncomfortable place between Isaiah 42 and 43. Way too many Christians simply want to jump to Isaiah 43 and ignore 42. I want us to know the love of God like we've never known it before. But the only way to do that is to confront head-on our failures and our sins. We cannot go on ignoring them and hope to know the life-giving love of God. We also cannot excuse them and thereby magnify the love of God. But here's where hope is found. Hope is found if we'll stay with the story and consider, well, as the ESV entitles chapter 43, Israel's only Savior. So Isaiah 43, 2, it's one of those inspiring verses, you know, that there's probably written on a coffee mug at Mardell. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. 
Through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. That is an amazing promise. But remember where the overwhelming flood and the burning flame came from. These are symbols, 42, 25, just look back. These are symbols of God's own judgment and wrath. Are you thinking this way? We sang a song this morning, All Praise Jesus Christ. It talks about God moved and loved to rescue me, and it talks about his awesome wrath poured out, and you're trying to hold, what, how do I hold those two things together? Israel's story is not that God would spare his people from judgment, but that this judgment would not be the end of the story of love. God had made a promise to Israel. To Israel, God would see his promise through. The promise was, in that sense, unconditional. It depends entirely upon a God who cannot be unfaithful. Israel's failure would not, could not mean the end of God's love. God is faithful to his covenant. But because the promise was a promise of love, and because love is nothing if it's not a mutual exchange, God's promise is, in this sense, conditional. The promise cannot be fulfilled if Israel is still living unfaithfully toward her God. So God seems to have created a dilemma. He set up a situation in which he's bound by his faithfulness and love to keep a promise. But he has to keep a promise not only on his end to never stop loving his people, he also has to see to it that his people love him in return. <laughs> and again, all of that for the benefit of the world for the benefit of the world. So how's God going to do it? The answer would, of course, remain a mystery for centuries. You get to the first century A.D., and this is the question. This is the question in which the New Testament breaks in. In chapter 43 here in Isaiah, verses 16 to 19, here's how the mystery is announced. Take a look. Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, they cannot rise. They are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Here's what he says. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I'm doing a new thing. Now it springs forth, do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Now, I hope, you, <laughs> I hope you're reading along here because I, I, I need you to think for a moment. God here in these verses promised to do something new, but it would not be something so new that 
it wouldn't sound like something he'd done before. Okay, so it might be helpful if you're looking at those verses to to notice the quotation marks where God actually starts speaking because the first part of this passage says, thus says the Lord who makes a way in the sea, a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down, cannot rise. They are extinguished, quenched like a wick. That's an old thing. In fact, what great event in Israel's past do verses 16 and 17 sound like? You should know this story. Thank you. I mean, it's as clear as day, isn't it? A way in the sea? Bringing chariots and horses, army and warrior to lie down, never to rise again? That's the God you're supposed to... This is the God of Israel. It's the language of the great event in Old Testament redemptive history. God says... I'm going to do something new. But it will be something reminiscent of the old story that made Israel who they were. And when God does this new thing, something as real and as life-altering as the exodus from Egypt, uh, it, will be, it will so supersede the exodus that in verse 18, that God says in verse 18, Israel wouldn't even talk about it anymore. The Exodus will be like, that's, that's old history, man. God did something so spectacular, so new. Remember the Exodus? Oh, yeah, yeah, I remember the Exodus. But let me tell you a real story. Uh, the prophet Jeremiah also said the same thing, that when God does this new thing, the Exodus will almost be like distant memory. Because there will be a new exodus, even more striking, even more spectacular than what happened to Israel coming out of Egypt. Now, do you see the place you've come to, Christian? Do you see the place you stand in human history? Well, maybe you don't. Or, you know, you're smiling under your mask. Okay, so you're with me, perhaps. I'm just not getting a lot of feedback here. So I'm going to have to make you turn to your New Testament, to Luke chapter 9. Go to Luke chapter 9, because as Christians, you, you're standing in a place that the prophets of God, the Bible says, longed to know about. God said, I'm going to do something so new, so spectacular, that you're not even talk about the Exodus anymore. You're, gonna, you're going to... Your whole story is going to be filled with a new moment in history. It's going to make you forget the old. So in Luke chapter 9, we find Luke describing that mysterious moment known as the transfiguration of Jesus. Remember that? Leaves you scratching your head like, what in the world? Luke reports that Jesus is encountering on this mountain Moses and Elijah. Look at verse 31. Moses and Elijah, they talked with Jesus about his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. You got a little note by your Bible there? The Greek word 
translated departure in Luke 9.31 is the word exodus. Like that's, that's almost exactly how you'd say it. This is what Jesus was about to accomplish, not just the equivalent of what God had done for Israel many centuries before when he brought them out of Egypt. This is the new thing that God had promised would so outweigh, overshadow the Exodus, we wouldn't even sing about it anymore. Sing about it. You know, you read, you read in the Exodus, right after the waters come back and bury Pharaoh's armies in the sea, you know what Israel did? They sang. They sang a song. Part of what made the achievement of Jesus so much greater than the exodus from Egypt is that, as Isaiah predicts here in Isaiah 43, 25, when this day comes, when God does this new thing, in that moment, God would blot out Israel's transgressions, just like he had blotted out Pharaoh's army. He would remember their sins no more, burying them in the deepest part of the sea, just like he buried the chariots of Pharaoh in the waters of the Red Sea. This would be the moment in which God would, as promised, return his people from exile, establish his kingdom on earth, and pour out his spirit upon all his people, causing them to walk in his ways. And God's people would sing about the Exodus. They would sing about a God moved by love to rescue them in the cross and in the power of resurrection. It's the greatest love story ever told. It's the story of God. And Christians, there is an urgent need for us today to get back to the story and let it do its work on us. We've so minimized what the infinite love of God is that we've lost our voice. I want us to gain it back. So in the coming year, our plan is to be largely in this Old Testament story. We're going to use two Old Testament books, which in different ways will emphasize to us the life-giving love of God. We're going to begin, Lord willing, next week, by studying the Old Testament prophet Ezekiel. And we'll introduce that next week. The other Old Testament book that we intend to study together is the Song of Solomon. Now, understanding the life-giving love of God is an urgent need for Christians today, and here's why. Because when we forget the story, we succumb to the temptation of thinking that the world can be one either by us siding with one of the many political powers of men, choose whichever one you want, or conversely, the world can be won by, well, it can't be won. Let's just retreat from the world and its many problems with a merely privatized faith, which, by the way, the world is perfectly happy with you having. Christians, we have a better story. Brothers and sisters, we have a story of love, a story that really does offer, indeed guarantees to the world, a hope that will transform the world. 
has transformed the world, and to this day, by the power of God's Holy Spirit, living in the love of God in Christ, can transform the world you live in today as well. So this is where we're heading, by God's grace. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, undoubtedly, because of